Sean Moriarty from Nerds on Film here to talk to you about Audible.com. Audible.com has thousands of audiobooks for your listening enjoyment, and if you're like me, you enjoy hearing things rather than reading them. I mean, that's why we all listen to podcasts, right? So if you go to our website and go to either the blog or the podcast section and click on any of our blog posts or episode posts, you'll be able to see an Audible.com banner. If you click on that and sign up for a 30-day trial, you'll get a free audiobook, and you'll also give us a little bit of money. And we need money. We need it really bad. I need an operation on my sense of humor. It's seriously starting to damage people. Go to our website, nerdonomy.com, click on the podcast or the blogs, and help us out. Last time on Nerds on History, Eric and Brian? Well, you better hear it for yourself. Brian, why would you eat the entire jar of Nutella? I'm sorry, I was really hungry. You you don't understand the gravity of the situation. What, was it your wife or something? Worse than that, I was cultivating flesh-eating bacteria in it. Oh my god! What, what, who does that? Why would you do that? It, it's, it's, it's a hobby. Don't judge me. Just get it out of your system. And how? Make yourself throw up. I can't throw up on command. Just put your finger down your throat. Uh, uh, I can't. It's too much Nutella. Oh, my God. Uh, just think of Rush Limbaugh naked. I would better die. Oh, oh, all right. All right. Uh, stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Okay. All right. Now close your eyes. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh! Why would you do that? <laughs> Why did you kick me in the balls? Well, you threw up, didn't you? You didn't have Epicac? Oh, God, I always forget that I have it in the... You know, i got to put that poison cabinet closer. <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. You all right? I'm fine. All right. I think you're good. I don't think there's any... What's the topic? We're, we're, we're doing the our picks of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Oh. Yeah. You want to get some food after? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. How are you, sir? I, 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 I've had a long week, but I'm okay. I'm good. I feel like I'm having a lot of long weeks lately. Yeah? Yeah, I was sick and, you know, my, my grandmother's been in the hospital, but she's... Oh, right. You know, yeah. she's she's doing okay, listeners. Please, you know, send your thoughts our way. We're we um we could use a little extra thoughts right now. If you got prayers and you do that, you can do that too. I'm agnostic, but I'll take them. <laughs> I'll take whatever I can get right now. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know what? I'm okay, and I'm happy that we're here today because uh, this is a topic that I, if you remember from the last episode, I'm very excited about, uh, and I, yes. I, I can't wait to keep talking about it. But how, how are you doing? I'm all right. You're sitting pretty over there. All reclined back I am and relaxing. Well, I'm excited because I got my arm mount now. So, yeah. Mine has been held up well, back been, east somewhere under snow. Yeah. Well, I've been trying to work on my posture and hunching forward to go into our mics. You guys, I don't think you guys ever saw, but our mics were on these little stands, which were nice, but they're definitely not at mouth level. So we have to lean in to make it work. And... It can get tiring after a while, and as it is, I hunch forward in my job, so I'm trying to make steps forward to keep myself up as upright as possible. So what Brian is trying to say is that he's relaxing, and I am hunched over Mike like a chump. 
Well, you can draw that implication for yourself <laughs> if you like. Um, I may have thought it, but I never said it. Oh, well, thank so, you. So, how decent of you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just the kind of guy I am. Oh, a couple more days and I'll have my, my arm out. My, that's true. And my I mean, blue the goal is arm out. Exactly. The new arm out. And the no, goal no, is blue. The blue I got the arm. blue one. Oh, you got a blue one, right. Yeah. I was going to get a red one, but they were out of stock. So I had to get the, go with the black one. I'm actually really excited because the, the goal is to have all the Nerd Cave mics all armed up so that we can just all feel the same way. It just happens that I was the, the litmus test. I was the one who yeah, wanted to make sure it would pig. work. Well, we almost went with yellow, black, red, and white, and that would have covered most of the Power Rangers, mm-hmm. but I, I screwed things up and went with blue. Well, blue's a oh, Power Ranger. Oh, no, there is a blue Power there's Ranger. There's no pink Power right. Ranger, though, so we would have only had we would have only had four of the five. Oh, well, no, there's a pink Power Ranger, but we, we don't have a pink mic stand. That's, that's what I'm saying. Oh, there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been a pink mic stand. And plus, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad we're addressing this, because uh, I feel like this is important for our listeners. Yeah. 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 What we actually were really <laughs> excited to see is when there's danger I and mean, danger in the nerd cave, the mics can all just kind of join together and make one giant mega mic. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And it protects us from from the hordes of And just of destroys traders. half of our cave while we're at <laughs> <laughs> What the hell happened? Oh, there must have been a monster that attacked a little goblin that got into the nerd cave. And I guess Alan is kind of like our uh, our Zog then. Is it Zog? What was the name of the Zordon. Mo- Zordon, that's right. Zordon. Alan is kinda of like our Zordon. <laughs> and the, I guess the wheel of history is kind of like well, the this, Alpha Five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I can't. This knowledge is going way too far. That's amazing. Well, this is nerds on history. This is our command center. This yeah. is our command center. Well, uh, should we get to the listener feedback? Sure, we should. This week in listener feedback. Well, we have a whopping one piece of listener feedback this week, but uh, it, it's a good one. So uh, I'll go ahead and read it. It's from Melissa. I have to say the podcast that the History Guys did on the Roma was fantastic. I have listened to all the podcasts so far, and yes, it was more serious and less funny, but it was very well done. Infotainment at its best. Keep up the hard work and try to stay warm. Uh, There's a smiley, winky emoticon also included. I don't know how to actually vocalize that. So I'm going to try actually uh, vocalizing the emoticon. I've never done that before. That's what I imagine it would sound like. Uh, Anyhow, she continues, only one suggestion. Uh, They may want to do listener mail, okay, listener feedback, at the end. It's kind of dull. That way the audience can skip it or not. Thanks, and lots of exclamation marks, which there is an actual vocalization for if you've ever listened to Victor Borga, uh, which is... Can you do it however many times you did? See, it's moments like these, these pop filters paying for themselves it's true i gotta say so melissa i i I read this obviously before i read it live and i I, of course i did not take your advice i'm sorry we did at the very beginning of the episode but there's a reason why we do that one we love our listeners we love our community and we love to make them a part of the episode we love to do it right away because sometimes your listener feedback is super topical to an episode that we just did previously uh very relevant Always good stuff, right? So we like to share that uh, right away. And second, I did take your advice because I livened this one up a bit with all sorts of attempts at vocalizing emoticons, and I brought Victor Borg into it. So uh, it was either that or I read it like a famous person from history. But uh, we saved that for our advertisements. Anyway, Melissa, thank you for your kind words about that episode. We appreciate it. It was a great episode. I'm going to go down and go down and say it's probably our best episode that we've done. I think it's definitely our most responsible episode. <laughs> uh, 
it's funny. <laughs> um, it is what it is. You know, our listeners, we, we really, I want to second what Eric has to say. You know, we, we really do love our listeners so much that uh, we find what they have to say is important. And it's, I think we were talking about this before, the podcast wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't for that feedback. And we feel we owe it to our listeners to have it read at the front of the podcast because we don't think it should be overlooked. Yeah. And we do things differently here at Nerds on History. Right. right. The film guys, they can do... the No, and I say that as one of the film guys. The film guys can do the feedback at the end because... There's too much hilarity in the beginning of those podcasts exactly. to fit anything but It's kind of your cool down. Hilarity. It's yeah. your sobering up part of the, of the podcast. Exactly. You get exactly. drunk on humor and then you... Then that's the coffee. <laughs> if that's the jokes the are the cigarette, vodka, right? That's the coffee and the and the Advil. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, shall we take Melissa's point? And get on with this. Yes, let's get on with it. <laughs> get on with it. So, part one. Part one. What did we talk about last week? We talked about I don't know old stuff. I think ancient. Oh, stuff. first of all, we had our my uncle Greg. That's right. Greg was on. Who's fantastic, by the way. Yeah, he was so much fun. Uh, and he brought so many ideas to the episode. It was yeah, great. Yeah, and what an amazing actor. I mean, obviously, he's been doing it his entire life, but I, it's worth mentioning on my part. I just I think he was such a, a fantastic, uh, not only guest, but character. Yeah. I mean, that character was, I mean, he had the bit written out, but the character of Basil Fitzbasil was kind of improvised in the moment. And so is the, the whole Napoleon bit that he did in the middle. Like, that was all, like, really, like, clever, we thought. And, I mean, obviously, he has some of the best theater training in the world. I mean, yeah. we talked about how he went to Juilliard. But it was it was just really great to have him on. And he definitely wants to come back. And next time he's in town, if he was here today, he would be here right now finishing up this topic with us. But, unfortunately, he had to drive back to Southern California because he has classes starting in a week. So, back yeah. to where he's teaching. Uh, yeah. But, nonetheless, we, we were able to accomplish quite a bit with him here. Yeah. And we talked about uh, Chaco Canyon. Right, which is in uh, Colorado. Uh, New Mexico. New Mexico, which is, but it, there's, I, I thought that because the Kivas, there's Kivas in Colorado as well. The Chacoan people were all in that whole area. Right. So some of them were up in Colorado, but, but Chaco Canyon specifically is located yeah, in the, uh, New Mexico. Uh, the Pueblo tribe is what was very dominant in southwest Colorado. That's right. If you go to Mesa Verde National Park, they've got tons of Kivas there, and it's outstanding. It's beautiful. Very, very rough hike if you're not inclined for it, but it's so awesome. But we're going there. Th- these are the same people. This is just the Chacoan culture of the ancient. Right. The Pueblo is the overall, the overarching uh, nation. Um, it's the Chacoan or the uh, kind of a, like a subset of the of the Pueblo. Right. They were an ancient tribe within that, within all of the, the Pueblo people of, of uh, the southwestern United States. So we talked about Chaco Canyon and how elaborate those complexes are. And, and, and the their can- alignments and everything. Yeah. Just phenomenal. Really amazing, outstanding. Amazing, amazing, um, amazing, amazing. An amazing understanding of geometry, too, as well. Really, really quite outstanding. Uh, then we talked about, of course, the Acropolis in yep. Athens. Which is still stands to this day to some form or the other. The the, the Parthenon is more of a of an outer casing of what it used to be, but the Acro- the Acropolis still exists, right? right. The city on a hill, uh, and then finally we wrapped it up with the Temple at Karnak in Egypt. For those right. of you who don't know, and we talked about how we we ended on on a necropolis, a, a place of of the dead, and we're going to begin on a necropolis because what better to to start off with than the mausoleum of Emperor Chin. So let's let's do a little bit of backstory before we get into why this is so relevant. Well, first of all, who would Emperor Qin were we talking about? We're talking about really a guy named Ying Zheng, who basically in the third century unified China. 
China at this point was a series of, of smaller kingdoms that were at war with one another. Well, he finally had essentially conquered mainland China and had put them together. And he declared himself the first emperor. And this is really why he's the emperor of China, not the king of China, right? And that template set in, in place for, God, I mean, until the 20th century, pretty much, until Chiang Kai-shek and the, the nationalist revolution that took place. But nevertheless, that paradigm was in place for two millennia, which is outstanding, unbelievable. He had taken the throne in about 246 BC, and then he died in 209. So he was emperor for about 35 years. But the moment he took the throne, he had already started working on his tomb. And let's talk about why that's important, right? Because we never really delved into China very, very much, but we've also haven't really talked about the spiritual concepts that come into play here. I mean, because it's very similar to the Egyptians, actually. Oh, absolutely it is. And what we're talking about, just, just for folks who don't know, in the burial chamber surrounding this tomb uh, are over 8,000 of these... Life-sized terracotta soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're, they're absolutely enormous. And along with it are 130 chariots, also made out of clay, uh, 520 horses, and 150 cavalry horses. So we're talking about a huge undertaking to recreate uh, the likeness of, of actual individuals and, and a whole yeah. army. And they're essentially there to protect the body of Emperor Qin. I think the reason why that is is, is really important to, to acknowledge. So first of all, it makes a little bit of sense because he had just, you know, conquered warring kingdoms, right? So there might be people who have some bad blood who might be out to get him. So let's let's put those there as a means of warding off any potential spirits or people who would want to desecrate the memory of that, you know, emperor and retake the throne, right? There's that. But there's also the whole idea of why that is, why it's significant that we're still watching over his body. And that goes into the whole Chinese perception of the soul. Exactly. And this is where that parallel comes in with ancient Egypt, because there is the concept in ancient Egypt, anyhow, of the of the Ba and the Ka. The Ba was more of the spiritual side of the soul. The Ka was more of the physical duplicate that the soul possessed. And as such, Egyptian tombs are full of things like food and model replicas of actual people, servants and soldiers and things like this, things that you see mirrored in this exact same burial. And they were there to be represented in the afterlife. Now, this is similar in China as well because of the, the concepts and ideas around the Chinese soul, very old ideas revolving around the Po and the Hun. And if you think about it in the terms of, the, of yin and yang, Okay, so the, the Po is more of the earthly side of the soul, right? The, that physical being not unlike the Ka in ancient Egypt. The body, essentially. The body, right. Whereas the Hun is more characterized as the, as the yin, right? So that is more of the, the spiritual stuff, the ethereal stuff. And that's more like the Ba, which passes into the afterlife and exists right. in a non-corporeal fashion, right? Time doesn't really exist for something like that. Whereas with the Ka things would have a continuation and it's similar in this regard with the po right the po is essentially what's what is what is being protected at this point what's being protected what's being sustained right um what is making existence easier for the po and so in addition to the soldiers that were also included uh in this army there were also you know musicians and acrobats and strongmen so entertainment that would have been entertaining uh, not only the troops, but also the general as he was on his campaigns. Right. And what I find really fascinating, though, is that, you know, you talk about the yin, the yang, the, the chi, 
chi is the breath, right? That's why they they talk about um, you breathe in chi to maintain the hun, and then you you have you have the food to maintain the po. So the yin and the yang is what we're we're kind of alluding to, right? The sense of duality, the dual yeah. spirit. But it's more the breath that I find really interesting because chi is the breath, is the spirit essentially, and yet the word spirit itself from the Latin root is spire to breathe, right? It's it's still talking about breath. We tie so much of the of living to the fact that we can breathe. We give it a supernatural value, which I find really, really interesting. And that, that same concept uh, develops in two totally separate cultures. Yeah, and it's this parallel that we've talked about a hundred times on the show, right? It's, it's nothing new to our listeners. It's nothing new to us. It's the fact that we are all human beings. We all go through the same thing at some point in our history. And so even though the words might be different and some of the customs and traditions around it may vary, the the core belief behind it is pretty much exactly the same. Yeah. And it's just it's funny and it's and it's interesting when it does match up so closely and when there is a real clear parallel between the two. Yeah. So why does this deserve to be a, uh, considered part of our new Seven Wonders? Well, first of all, if you've seen a picture of any of these soldiers, I mean, they are in very elaborate detail for the timing that they exist. These are over 2,000 years old. Meticulous detail. I mean, down yeah. to the strands of hair on their heads. Right. And these guys are life-size. Like, you don't get it until you see a picture of a person near, <laughs> looking at the statues. And the horses, too. The horses are life-size as well. It's really stunning how much detail went into this. Some uh, historians, like Shu uh, Ma Qian, uh, who wrote about Qin about 100 years after he, he had died, speculated it took over 700,000 people to do this. That's 100 people per sculpture, so I don't know if it's quite that extreme, but well, nevertheless. I mean, in addition to the sculptures, I think he's also referring to the burial complex as a whole. Right. They, were, they literally erected a mound. Effectively, we were talking about back to our first episode. Yep. Chinese pyramid, right? Exactly. So, And uh, not only that, but there were also uh, all the armaments that were necessary to keep these soldiers effective in battle, right? So you had swords and you had spears and axes and shields and crossbows and arrowheads and you name it. I mean, full on armor that was designed to be a lot of armament for these seemingly inanimate objects, which of course had a much deeper symbolic meaning. Uh, but that's a lot of things that had to be manufactured. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of wealth that had to be spent just on this one tomb. And that's why it really earns its way into it. The detail, the amount of resources it took to do it, and the fact that it, it maintained itself for 2,000 years. It was found in 1974 yeah. being unearthed, right? And there's some parts that I haven't even gone into it. They haven't actually excavated the actual tomb. Right. They, they the found burial the, chamber. Yeah, the burial chamber, I should say. The mausoleum is all the only part they found. They found the entranceway to Emperor Qin's tomb. And they're actually doing that out of respect. They don't want to... It's very much still ingrained in the culture that you don't want to disrespect the grave of, of someone who's been living, so you, they will not exhume it for that right. reason. Which is both, I think, for archaeologists, a, a curse and a blessing. As long as the site is identified and can be kept safe, yeah. then by all means, keep things covered up, don't excavate it. Yeah. But kind, the problem yeah. with that is... Well, we lose out on learning so much more as a result. Right. So, yes, you have to excavate some of it. But the other thing is, if you've got a pretty good sample of the site, you can more or less tell the general idea for the site. It's those little 
interesting things that pop up that only happen when you fully excavate that we would be missing. Right. And we're, we're kind of kicking ourselves because we had an opportunity to see these up close. The Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, a quick one-hour car ride from where we are now, had these on display last year. And we were we were totally going to go make a day of it, do some great research live, and then do an episode just on this. And our lives got very, very busy. My grandmother passed away. You know, yeah. we were finishing school. Lots of other things were going on. So it was one of those things where we just we didn't have time to do it. And I wish we had because these were so stunning. Sure. If you um, live in the Bay Area and you got an opportunity to see it or you saw it as it was traveling to another city or another country, please, by all means, email us and share us your thoughts. We'll read them on the show in a future episode. Uh in addition to, of course, people who live in China or have visited China and have actually gone to the mausoleum itself and and seen them in person, because yeah. you can you can take a tour of, of the site. Well, and a few um, of them are on display in the in the museums in China as well. Oh, absolutely. There's quite a bit of of the items that have been excavated that are on display. But share your your thoughts and maybe even any photos that you have. We can put them up on the website and we'll do a special blog post for it. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, sir. So that brings us back to you. What is the next location on our journey through the seven wonders of the ancient-ish world? We're already in Asia, China specifically. But let's go a little further south to Cambodia. Because there we have the largest temple in the world. And that is, of course, Angkor Wat. Right. This thing is a gigantic complex. Oh, it's absolutely enormous. And this is kind of the reason why we're calling this episode Ancient-ish, because uh, this and Chaco Canyon, which I know are my, my two submissions to this, they are a bit later, but they are so significant and so extraordinarily important. And even though the scope of time is only about 900 years, as opposed to, you know, three or 4,000 years compared to some of the other wonders that we've talked about, it is still nonetheless wondrous. And it is, as you said, immense. And the temple itself is only one component of this. You also find that the entire city, surrounding city of Angkor was essentially the equivalent of LA today in, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, total square mileage and perhaps not in terms of total amount of people living there, but for the time it was the equivalent of a congested Los Angeles uh, because nearly one million people are, are theorized to have lived in that city when it was uh, the capital of the, the Kamar uh, Empire. And that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about uh, Kamar, which is the language that is spoken in Cambodia today, but was the name of the of the ancient empire as well. And this are the, the people of Cambodia that ruled over uh, much of the surrounding area. I mean, it was a really very large area of influence that they had under control. And one of the, the greatest leaders that they had, uh, Syria Varman II, was the one responsible for turning the city into what it was, and of course, obviously, the construction in the in the center there of Angkor Wat. Right. Which simply means Temple City. Right. Uh, is, is, the, is the name for it, Wat meaning city. Yeah, Angkor uh, is the more formal name for it. I think Angkor Wat is kind of just like another, another title for it. Right. So Angkor, the city, and the temple were really synonymous with one another, right? They didn't really see them as much of a distinction. There was just a city that kind of developed around Angkor because that was the the eventual resting place of uh, Syria Varman, but it was also his seat of power. And what's interesting is if you look at pictures of Angkor Wat today, 
what you see is mostly vegetation and flatlands uh, mixed with jungle and all sorts of, of course, canals and, and a very, very high water table. And it's really not all that different than it was, you know, 900 years ago. The big difference was that the Khmer people were constructing pretty much their entire city out of wood. Stone architecture was reserved for the temples, just like the ancient Egyptians, interestingly enough. The Egyptians always built in, in stone for temples because those were places of eternity. That's literally what they called their temples. And that is mirrored uh, here in the, in the Hindu traditions of the Khmer people as well. So they were amazing craftsmen. They took advantage of all of the wood that they had available to them. And this is really tough jungle fauna, right? This is not something that is super easy to work with. So it's no big surprise that when they do eventually move to stone and they end up building Angkor Wat, that they are able to produce probably um, its greatest claim to fame, which is these amazing bas-reliefs that you find throughout the entire temple. And to give you a little understanding of the scope of this, we need to talk more about the construction of Angkor Wat, because it is nothing less than an architectural miracle that it even exists. Because what I've been describing doesn't exactly sound like the easiest place to build something, does it? No, not at all. What's the biggest problem that you can imagine with building in wetlands? Well, first of all, sinking yeah. offhand, number Found one. Foundation. Right. And you've also talked about that you're near jungle, too. So you also have to deal with, unfortunately, deforesting some of that land to to build some of it i'm not, not sure if the cambodians even did that but they did they in did. fact that was one of the leading reasons to the fall of the the Khmer empire uh, was because of the amount of deforestation they had done and the way that they had essentially polluted their environment to create enough right. food to feed all these workers to build things like angkor wat and so there's other implications right now you're also talking about <laughs> now when you think of it today we think about deforestation the the harm it has some wildlife and the harm it has potentially on the environment as well i don't think that was a concern at this point in time they, they were just like we need some land you yeah. know um but i would probably say of those two but yes it's upsetting that you're doing deforesting but probably just the sinking aspect of it would be the single biggest factor yeah and that was the that was a huge challenge for them is how do we make a stable foundation to build this because remember now they're working with stone with wood okay it's still important to have a, a good foundation but these structures were a bit more temporary uh in their in their creation this was something that was supposed to last forever so when you look at an aerial photo of Angkor Wat, what is one of the most recognizable features of it besides the actual temple? What's on the outside of that, if you will? A moat. Yeah, exactly. That moat, you know, you might think is to keep out invading armies uh, or to make a, a grander spectacle of what's actually happening, you know, using it as a massive reflection pond, but it's actually totally functional. So this is this is what they did. They they had to dig down uh, into the soft earth and silica and clay that, that that made up you know the land that they were building on. And underneath that is the water table, which is super super close to it. If you dig down far enough, you're going to hit water and you're going to flood that whole area. So they dug down as far as they could because this was also sacred earth that they were taking out, and they had to build on top of sacred earth. So once they had dug it down, they rebuilt the entire foundation using a mixture of, again, some of the dirt they had brought out, but also stone and sand and a lot of other material to bring it up back to ground level. Then they dug up nearly 1.5 million cubic uh, feet of mud and earth to build this moat all the way around and then laced it with stone and then filled that with water. And they made it so that the water table would essentially always stay the same 
around the foundation of the of the building area because during the monsoon season when you have this torrential downpour of rain about 80 percent of precipitation happens during that time you would find the water table rising but because there was water already there it didn't really have anywhere to go if you will it kind of evened everything out and then the other big problem right because if it wasn't for that moat you'd have all this water pushing the land up and breaking the foundation the other side of that is of course what happens during the dry season when the water table then begins to drop dramatically and quickly and if that were to happen again without that moat everything that was pushed up would then fall down and sink in bringing the entire building with it yeah so that water in the moat continues to make that level water table regardless of the the time of year so it's fascinating the whole system of runoff that they had to design during the monsoon seasons of the moat would essentially over flood and then cause the water table to rise was intricate uh i mean it took nearly five thousand people to build the moat wow just the moat we're not even talking about the temple oh wait how big is this moat again it's huge it's absolutely huge. Uh, it's essentially, if you took out the, if you, not just the moat, but the entire complex from, from one side of the moat to the other, including the temple on the inside, you could comfortably fit about 100 aircraft carriers. Wow. Yeah. That's freaking huge. It's insane. That's why it's functional. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it still survives uh, today. It's, it, it just absolutely blows my mind, the the level of sophistication that went into the design of this place. I mean, you think about the scope of this, right? And not only that, but we're also talking about the actual temple on the inside. On the inside of that, there are several mounds that lead up to the spiritual uh, recreation of Mount Meru, which in the Hindu tradition uh, is, a, is a sacred kind of legendary... Uh, location, uh, a series, uh, a mountain with one prominent mountain with several peaks, four other peaks nearby. So these five spires and pillars that you see in the temple construction emulate that. And of course, all the surrounding stone that goes into that construction. So this is this is huge. It took 35 years to build. Today, that's that's just an unfathomable length of time with our modern building technology. But I mean, at the time this was built, 35 years is not terrible you think about the cathedrals that were being built in france around the same exact time right some of them took 300 years to complete right there's some well there's actually the cathedral that's i think is it in germany or in spain the one that still hasn't been completed yet i think there's a few of them but yeah yeah there's a very famous one and i don't remember yeah, off the top of i my can't head. remember off my head either but it's like it's been in construction for over 100 years and it was it started being built in the 19th century oh okay yeah unbelievable and it's because they've had to like they've had to deal with you know natural disasters, world wars, uh, things like that that prevented it from being done. Anyway, that's a tangent. But but it, it's incredible when you think about it. And then you think about the person who built it, right? Uh, Syria Varman was a really interesting person because when he came to the throne, he was only about 14 years old. And it was done in an organized coup that overthrew his, his uncle and put him in power. And we've seen examples of this in history, right? These rulers who are trying to validify their rule end up doing something really big to compensate, to make up for it, to show that they are the rightful ruler. And building something like Angkor Wat is a, a perfect example of that. Uh, it is dedicated to the Hindu god Vishnu, who, among many other things, is also associated in part with warfare. And so it's not a big surprise, then, that the temple would be built to this person who was expanding an empire, building an empire, a warrior, if you will. Uh, it's also oriented to the West, 
which is unusual for many of the Kamara temples. It's the, an unusual orientation for it, but it's perfectly normal for Vishnu. And there are many theories that this was also the burial place um, for him. So this would, of course, been oriented to the West because that was the tradition of the time yeah. uh, in, in relation to the burial tradition. This really fascinates me because you don't ever hear about Hinduism spreading beyond India, right? And the fact that this goes into a whole other culture and country, that gets the history nerd in me a little geeky. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> because you think about 35 years, okay, yes, even if you've mobilized uh, pretty much all of your population to do this, that's still pretty incredible feat. And again, I can't help but pull these parallels to ancient Egypt, to a culture that, you know, happened thousands of years earlier. The Egyptians employed the exact same technique that uh, that they have because they had very similar environments. The Egyptians were dependent on the River Nile and its flooding to provide them with what they needed to live there. So there's a large period of time when that's not happening and you have this enormous workforce. So you're going to have them do state projects, right? Like build temples. Same thing here. Yeah, you had that monsoon season, but when that was over and you had the rest of the year, which was pretty much dry, uh, and a whole community that is relying on, you know, canals and irrigation to do all their form- farming for them, you have a huge population you can put to work. Yeah. And that's exactly what was done. A very clever, actually, use of manpower. Oh, absolutely. But you think about the stone aspect of all this, right? That's a lot of limestone to have to quarry. Yeah. A lot. And that's the interesting is a lot of it on the inside is not limestone at all. It's huh. laterite. Interesting. Laterite is some pretty cool stuff. It develops in certain climates, and it's a very porous, soft stone that is much easier to quarry and mine when it's wet, which (laughs) pretty much all of it was because they were mining it from these jungle areas. So they were able to extract a large amount of this stuff and use it as the foundation filler for these, you know, much more elaborate facades that were constructed out of limestone. Uh, that limestone had to be quarried elsewhere, however, and they used these fascinating, intricate system of canals uh, to transport it all, expanding throughout the entire country. You can I, I heard it described once as Venice on steroids. So to do it, though, and to do it in the time, they estimate that they would have had to extracted probably about 300 blocks of limestone a day. But isn't that also how the Egyptians got the transported blocks for the cities they were building? Didn't they use they the did. Nile? They used the river. Absolutely. I was going to say. So it, it, it makes sense. It's a natural and automated means of transportation. The only thing you have to build is rafts, essentially, that can hold the weight of the, of the stone. It would eventually fall to invaders and the Kamara empire would eventually fall with it uh in 1431 the city was ransacked and pretty much a year later it was abandoned and with that all the 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 rest of that area of ankar simply disappeared and was absorbed by the environment except for the temple and the temple continues to this day it is under uh a buddhist occupation if you will at this time it's not it's no longer a hindu temple well that's okay though because the buddhists above anything they they respect their current environment exactly and they have done so much to keep the temple in the shape that it is and also to open it up to tourists right and it's not to make a buck it's to share this incredible monument this incredible piece of history this wonder so important that it is right on the um on the cambodian uh, national flag yeah. So that's how significant it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I've always wanted to visit. I don't care how many shots I have to get 
to go there. I don't care <laughs> if I get malaria. I don't care. I want to see Angkor Wat because uh, it blows my mind. Yeah. And you're going to have a chance to because it's under the protection of the United Nations. It's a UNESCO yep. site, just like the Acropolis was. And I think we also mentioned, um, I think UNESCO is also under Chaco Canyon's protection too, right? Or, or should they mm-hmm. say? Yeah. Chaco Canyon is also under UNESCO's protection as well. No, no, it's the other way. You're just being funny now. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm really trying. I'm trying well, too hard. just stop. Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there um, you go. That's all it takes, guys. Just say stop. No. Yeah, and I'll listen. I will. I really will. Uh, but yeah, absolutely incredible. Please, I encourage you to, to read up on it. Look up uh, some of these amazing bas reliefs because the this construction period of 35 years, how much of that do you think was done just carving? Right. The fact that they were able to accomplish that much in 35 years is really stunning. But how much? How much do you think was done just carving? They'd already constructed the core of the temple. Now everything was just to be carved. So it would Probably. Look I would, I'm going to guess 20 of those years. Half. So you're very close. Yeah. Half. So 17 of those 35 years. Yeah. Okay, so not too far away. Approximate, of course. We don't yeah. have an exact uh, number on that, but oh, it like, blows my mind. Wait, wait. No, 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 no. That pattern's wrong. We're supposed to do this. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but some of them are so detailed that you have to really look at it to understand what you're seeing because there's possibly two or three different things going on in layers right on top of each yeah, other. The, the, just looking at some of the patterns for the inside, just the door jams are so intricate. Yeah. Uh, and they're sculpted directly into the stone. They're not embellishments that were put on top of it. It's right. like, it's, it is very impressive. I, I do want to mention one last thing before we move on, because you, you did talk a little bit about UNESCO taking over. And in the 1980s, some restoration was started, but it had to kind of be put uh, to a hold, and we had to rethink the way that we're actually restoring Angkor Wat, because a lot of those techniques, which were techniques that were developed in the West to preserve Western buildings, were actually damaging the buildings uh, or damaging the temple. And particularly the use of like concrete and things like that, uh, due to the totally different climate that was there, was causing all sorts of problems. And it was something that had to be stopped immediately. And now they're completely re-approaching the way they're doing this, looking back to the original architects and the way that they were building the building and trying to emulate what worked for thousands of years instead of trying to impose what we have developed onto it. Exactly. And guess what? That's what's working. And they're doing it quite literally brick by brick. That's the way it should be done, though. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a huge undertaking, and it's something that's absolutely... My heart goes out to all those people who are involved in it, because uh, those are the the pioneers for, for conservation. Yeah. Well, I think we should move on to the uh, the next category. But you know what? Oh, damn it. We have another temporal vortex. Now, you'd think that at this point it would just stop, but... No. Here it comes. I can hear it. <sighs> who we got now? Oh my lord, Ludwig von Beethoven. Hello? Where am I? You're in the nerd cave. What? The nerd cave. I'm, I'm sorry, what, what? The nerd cave. The nerd cave. Oh, yes, quite, yes, yes. This is a, definitely a, a small room where there's lots of nerdy things here. Yes. Yeah, d- d- don't, don't worry about it. We've, we've got something for you to read. Here. Oh, do you like music? I know I do. So when I go looking for musical instrumentation, I go to Amazon.com, where you can find my music, you can find all the instruments for which you can play my music, and you can find lots of other things as well. So that uh, is Amazon.com. Beethoven! Amazon. Beethoven. Is it A-M- Mr. Beethoven! 
A. Mr. Beethoven. Z. Amadeus. O. Ow! Why did you hit me in the face with that? That's good. Thanks. Oh, we're done? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, go step back through the vortex, please. Thank you. Are you going to serve me something to eat? No, just go. Go, go. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Beethoven. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, that was, um... I definitely got my, my lungs going. That was that was fun. Yeah, I think uh, you should have... Well, well, at least we had to say statement prepared this time. That's right. That's, that's right. We, we, we... Yeah. That's good, uh, but... I never thought I'd have no, to throw it's really something odd. Why is it that it always... The temporal rift comes through 45 to 50 minutes into our podcast? That's I don't just know. oddly accurate, don't you think? It is. It is very, very specific. Yeah. It's almost as if it was planned. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's Cosmos weird. and all that. Anyway, moving on. I'm glad that we talked about Hinduism, because we don't talk about that much either. But let's also talk about Buddhism. Buddhism, when we think of Buddhism, we, what's the country that you think of right away? Uh, well, I think of Tibet, obviously. Right, because of course it's the Dalai Lama. Sure, right. I think of China, I think of India, I think of Nepal. I Actually, I think of a lot of places. Yeah. But we, we get, India is not the first one that comes to mind, right? You think of Tibet because you think of the Dalai Lama. He's probably the sure. most famous Buddhist that there is right now. Hinduism and India go a little bit more. But then again, Hinduism and Buddhism are also Yeah, but we cannot know, forget that Buddhism was rooted right. in India. Exactly. That's what I mean by siblings. Exactly. Yes. And yes, of course, it was, it was you know... Gautama Buddha was a Hindu, Hindu at yeah, first, of course. Right? So you can't separate them completely, and um, though very different, because Buddhism Bud doesn't even really acknowledge the necessity for a pantheon of deities. It's right. it's it's kind of a an optional thing. Buddha was more talking about you know the idea of you you achieving your evolving your, uh, your, the evolving soul exactly and achieving your enlightenment right from there. So um, you can choose to believe in whatever god that meshes with who you are you know right. but it doesn't require it and you know when you think of of india right away you know india is a very religiously diverse country oh immensely yeah very much is predominantly still hindu in a lot of parts there's also that there's islam is a major and and sikhism of sikhism course. of course also catholicism there's a lot of indian catholics as well because of the british occupation for as long as it was um, and other just European influence as well. But what we don't think about, it's kind of sad that we think about Buddhism last when we think of think of India. At least I do. And I, don't, and I wish I didn't because it's very important. And that's also why we want to talk about the Stupa Sanji uh, because the Stupa Sanji is a collection of Buddhist art and architecture that goes as far back as the 3rd century B.C., all the way to the 12th century. So this is why it's also ancient-ish. Part of it is ancient, part of it is not ancient. And um, it, I mean, it goes back apparently to to uh, Emperor Osaka, who laid the foundations, and it was meant to be a religious center. Uh, Emperor Osaka actually built the first stupa, and it's just literally just called Stupa One. <laughs> this is coming from the research I'm pulling up here is from the archeological survey in India. And he literally built it. This is how far back it goes. It, he built it after the redistribution of the mortal remains of Buddha himself. How mm. crazy is that? Yeah. He built that, and he erected several stupas over the country in order to spread Buddhism. He did this in honor of that. That's, that's just mind-blowing, that he actually can root it directly back to the founder of the religion at that point. It's really cool. I mean, it's like saying, 
if Jesus had died right away and there wasn't the whole Romans <laughs> situation where he had to worry about fear, it's like saying, okay, no, we're going to, we're going to start Christianity now. We're going to build a, a giant church to Jesus now. That, did that happen? Of course it did. They made the church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, but that didn't happen until 300 plus years right. after the Romans had embraced it. But you're giving embraced a, it. an analogy of what it would, of the significance of it. Exactly. Yeah. It's just really, really, it kind of gets me goosebumpy to think about and this is the that. oldest stone stupa, obviously, yeah, uh, because it's that that center point. Uh, it's also one of the largest, and it is immense. For folks who don't know what what a stupa looks like, it is uh, a large dome like construction. Again, a mound, right? So when you think of pyramids, and we talked about this to death, I know, I know, I know. But it's important to mention because it is another element of that cross parallel cultural development. It's huge. I mean, one might even say that it's it's just it's stupefying in size. <laughs> well. Leave it to you to make the bad pun. Um, that was a great pun, by the way. <laughs> well, okay, fine. You know, but good and bad is very subjective. So, um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> uh, but I mean, if you just look at the picture of these, these are these. You know, you, you got these massive domes yeah. that have been erected, and uh, they're also very, very ornate too. They're sure. surrounded by these these fences that I gotta say maybe eight feet. These huge gateways tall. as well, yeah, and very elaborate gateways with sculpture built in to them much more ornate than you would expect from even from anything in the west because you no know, when, when you see these sculptures for gateways you know you think of mostly the greek like the doric and the ionic kind of stuff it's all very about geometry it's not so much about the opulence of of what you're trying to depict you don't get that until later on until, in, until until you get to the corinthian columns where you have the nice flourishes at the top and you know i'm doing a really bad art history lesson here but nevertheless you don't get the, those that ornateness until much later on right the fact that this goes back to the third century BC and you still see these ornate uh, sculptures in them is really, really stunning, and they're very, very detailed too. You can see like the eyes on the elephants, yeah, on these things. It's really, really cool. And you can see where over a thousand years later, Angkor Wat, for example, would get its inspiration from. Right? Oh, absolutely. That tradition that passed down through Hinduism and Buddhism, and it is passed all throughout the Asian continent. Obviously, there's stuff that predates this, but this is. Uh, some of the finest for its time. Yeah. And it's a great way for you to understand the Indian take on Buddhism, too, because the great stupa of Sanchi, I mean, yes, it's got this very big grandeur to it, but at the same time, the carvings also the, the, are depicting the whole like story of Lord Buddha's life, right? It depicts yeah. the miracles, like him, of course, the lotus that you know, came over and protected him right after he was born. All these, these occurrences taking place. Um, it's very symbolic, and it does so in a exactly. very sophisticated yet simplistic kind of way. Right. Now, Eric, how many temples do you think there are at the Stupa, stupa Sanjis? Individual temple complexes within all of this? Yeah, because there's the stupas, right, which are the, essentially the domes we're talking about, but then there's temples that are around them. Oh, I'd say maybe a dozen. Well, I don't have the exact number here, and so sorry about that, but there's definitely at least 40. Oh, my lord. <laughs> Yeah. And, oh, there's definitely at least 40. Wow. That's incredible. And I'm right. sure that, you know, the site over time, uh, some of those may have been lost to history. So who, it may be impossible to get an exact number, but that, sure. that's incredible. Of course, as any monument tends to be, it's been under, you know, it has had its own reconstructions. Yeah. And it's a, it has its own dark side to it, right? I mean, it's oh, been okay. under, <laughs> it's had different hands laying over it. At one okay. point in the fourth century, it was under the control of the Kushanas and then also the Kshatrapas. Um, and then eventually it was handed over to the Guptas as well. Oh. Yeah. And of course, every time it's happened, it's been added on to little bits in here. The Gupta period also built some more temples 
and eventually they added statues of Buddha at some point or another. The Sanchi had a pretty strong heyday between the 7th and 12th centuries, where there was a ton of shrines and monasteries that were added on during this process. And so I think the thing that the Indian culture wants to display with that is it shows, hey, coexistence. Yeah. Right? That even though it's changed hands, this whole spiritual symbol perseveres. Kind of like Angkor Wat in some ways. Exactly. And And it's beautiful. It really is, you know, it sums up the core values of religion. Right. Right. And a very interesting parallel, because if you were to compare, like, Judaism and Christianity, you know, obviously, because, I mean, for those who are coming late to the game, Jesus was Jewish. (laughs) You know, Christianity has its foundation in Judaism, right? Just as much as Buddhism has its foundation in Hinduism, as we've already stated. Yet Hinduism and Buddhism have always had this kind of harmony. You know, they're just like, hey, no, you got your thing. That's cool. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's too bad we already have the title for the episode decided, because that would have been a really good one. (laughs) We ever do an episode on on the coexistence of religions, which I think would be really interesting, because we talk about the wars between religious factions all the time, but we never talk about the peaceful coexistence, which does happen, believe it or not. Well, that would be a really great episode. Exactly. And, I mean, if anything else, the Stupa Sanchi is what symbolizes this this unity yeah. of those the coexistence of the, of those faiths. Honestly, as an agnostic, that's what it's all about for me. Um, if you're ever interested to go see this, if you're in India, uh, it will cost you 250 rupees to see the Stupa Sanchi, but that's only five American dollars. So I can spare that. I think you can spare that exactly. I, I, you know what? I'm feeling generous. I think I might give a slight donation. Five hundred rupees. Yeah, let's let's go crazy. Let's let's give ten bucks here. Yeah. And of course, uh, as seems to be a recurring theme with these new Seven Wonders, it is also a UNESCO project. Yep. So. Shocking. Shocking, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm glad that we included that one. I'm glad we included it as well. Well, we got one left. Do we really? Yeah. Oh, right. We're at the end of our journey, folks. That's right. So we've got one left, and we started in the Americas with myself, and we're going to end in the Americas with myself. I don't know what I really have to do with that. I think it just kind of worked out that way. But I'm very pleased about that regardless. Uh, you just wanted to make things cyclical. It, that's exactly what I did. It had nothing to do with my ego. Nothing. At all. Zero. Zero. What I'm talking about is uh, the only one of these wonders that either one of us has actually ever been to. And that is uh, Teotihuacan. Right. And that would be you, because I, I sadly have never left uh well that's not true i went to i went i left the united states once briefly niagara falls i crossed over the bridge into the canadian side i had dinner very nice a lot of wax museums um but (laughs) (laughs) and it was an arduous journey i mean you were i know it was like i was 10 you were the car with my grandparents we were a car for maybe maybe 20 25 minutes minutes. exactly yeah oh And Border Patrol was there. How did you they survive? Were like, they were like, my grandparents had to pull out their passports. And they asked, well, what about them? And they're like, well, they're just kids. And they're like, okay. So they just let us through. And they were so polite and saying thank you all the time. And I was like, what the hell kind of country are we going into? <laughs> uh, my, my, okay, yeah. <laughs> That was funny. So, that was just silly. It's just ridiculous. So, c- case in point, you've actually been to Mexico. Yes. I have not. Neither of us have really left North America, but that's fine. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time and money. But go ahead. It was definitely the crowning moment of, of the trip, right? Yeah. You were, I, you were happier than a pig in excrement. 
Because <laughs> I, I want. I mean, I could say shit, and I just did. But and we I just bleeped didn't want it. To. So nobody really knows what you said. They just heard me say shh. Yeah. So they thought maybe I was making you be quiet for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, we're uh, descending. You, you, you were as happy into as the a silly pig. part of this podcast. Yes. You've well retired at this point. Uh, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you were happier as a pick in that. Yes. In excrement, as you said. I, I went twice, actually. The first time that I went, we got rained out. And a thunderstorm came in. It was actually dangerous for us to be there. And that was the only time I was able to climb up to the very top of what is, of course, probably the, the most prominent uh, feature on the landscape. And really what makes this a wonder, which is the Pyramid of the Sun. Right. And on my return trip, there was actually conservation going on on the very top. So I wasn't able to go up there. But I, I did walk around the whole perimeter and went up onto uh, the second level and walked around the perimeter of that and got a whole idea for the entire site. And while I say that the Pyramid of the Sun is really the focal point for this wonder, the whole city of Teotihuacan, not unlike how Angkor Wat sits in the middle and the rest of the city is impressive, it's the same thing. It's a really fascinating place, and it's probably the best excavated site in all of Central America, and probably the least understood as well. Because we really don't know a lot about the people who built them. Everything that we've talked about preceding this, we've had a pretty good understanding of who these people were. Even at Chaco Canyon, we still had a pretty good understanding of the beliefs and the people and the connections yeah. that they made with the well, outside world. And we already talked about this. You know, when you're dealing with the, the cultures of the Mesoamericans and just of, of I don't like saying the word Native Americans because I know we said it before, but when we're talking the about indigenous people, of the those, those indigenous peoples, exactly. Uh, when we're talking about these cultures, the way they perceive and they cataloged their history was very different than how we do things in, in from our European ancestry. So we don't know so much because we're just not used to looking at, at things that way. You right. Know, they may have placed value in things that don't last the test of of time unfortunately sure but i think that uh nonetheless what they left behind is what's screaming to us from history right and the the people of teotihuacan it is thought that they were actually a pretty diverse culture we were dealing with people from all over mesoamerica uh and the the entire city itself was kind of cordoned off right so you had different districts if you will and some of the architecture there was extremely impressive. I mean, we're talking about apartment complexes that were designed to hold 80 or more families. Wow. Uh, many of them were constructed out of stone. So there was a lot of stone architecture going on in this area, which is unusual for a city of this size at this time in history. Because the city was starting its construction in or around 200 BCE, with the Pyramid of the Sun being completed around 100 CE. Uh, and by the time the city reached its its height of power, uh, nearly 300 years later, 350 years later, you're looking at somewhere between 150,000 and 250,000 people living here. Right. What I find fascinating about this, I mean, yes, it's this giant stone city. It's the uh, it's the field that's still there from the game that we're, we're not quite sure yes. what, what they were playing. It looked like some weird version of of basketball and soccer. Let's just call it what it is. Um, it's dodgeball. It's dodgeball, but with human heads. <laughs> yeah, and hips. Yeah. And then, but you had to throw them through these these giant rings that were that were ascended into the air. Yeah, these stone rings that are very ornate, really kind of cool, and also kind of terrifying when you think about <laughs> <laughs> about how they were being used. But just the the grandeur of 
even though I've never seen them myself, I've seen the, the, the photographs of them, the grandeur of those, the, that structure is, is very, very kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah, I, I imagine watching that game and, and the celebratory victory uh, lap around the ring would have been awkward when, you know, <laughs> you're holding the severed head and you're running around, you're excited, you won, you're alive, and you look over, you're like, oh, yeah, this is my friend. over some blood because it's still, you know, fresh. <laughs> yeah, and you're holding your friend's head in your head. Oh, right, Joe died. Whoa. Wow, I'm gonna put that down now. Uh, <laughs> this is when this is when they also develop psychology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's difficult to really talk to and to go into detail about because there isn't a whole lot of detail uh, because these individuals, whomever they were, whoever was the the central power that inhabited this city and controlled the surrounding area, didn't have a a written language as we know it. Right. Right. It was definitely very ideographic in the representations they left behind, and they did some amazing mural painting that has te- survived the test of time. But the Mayans of of that era, so their contemporaries, did do a little bit of writing about them, but not a whole lot of that yeah. has survived. So we're really kind of guessing who these folks were, and there's a lot of theories that are thrown out there, and that could take up a whole episode. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that. I do want to just mention the absolute attention to detail that goes into this place because i mean i remember walking around and everything i was looking at was just so precisely constructed and it's this kind of razor precision right you can't even fit a blade in between some of these stones they're so perfectly mortared and and set together that many times they don't even need mortar right they're able to just kind of uh, slip into place and you have these kind of razor joints that are that are created and then you do of course have more traditional mortar construction but on an enormous scale so the pyramid of the sun uh, while not nearly as tall as other pyramids around the world is incredibly wide uh, you know we're talking 700 feet in length to one side alone yeah. and according yeah. to you it's not easy to climb either it takes- oh the stairs are treacherous i mean they're extremely uh steep and uh, very narrow. You kind of have to walk pigeon toe, right? You got to be up on your, away from the balls of your of your of your heel to be able to navigate these. And I have some absolutely hilarious video of my wife uh, trying to walk down them, which I will not put online. You have to kind of walk down backwards, I imagine. Uh, you got to scoot down in your butt. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can see why. It's so funny. don't wear like white or tan pants. Uh, as I learned the first time, because you will get dirty. Yeah. Uh, but so, in other words, they're steep, but the actual steps are very shallow. Yeah, they're really, really narrow. I mean, you have to kind of walk with your feet at an angle, or like I said, kind of pigeon toe to do right. it. And it's just one part of the complex. So much that has yet to be uncovered that is being left alone, that's underneath all this earth. Uh, so the, the true scope of the scale of the city still kind of eludes us. Uh, but nonetheless, an absolutely incredible construction. And I know we're kind of getting close to to the end here so again i'll end like i have um with everything that we've talked about tonight if you live near these amazing monuments if you are a well-traveled individual maybe it's your first trip out of the united states seek these out do yourself a favor listening to us talk about it for what a collective two hours or so now will not do it any way shape or form justice You need to visit them, experience them, and learn about them. And every single one of these monuments that we mentioned, there is a museum or uh, an institution nearby that can teach you about the significance and history of them so that it doesn't just go over your head and you're just not walking around taking pictures. You're actually appreciating what you're seeing. 
Yeah. And I implore all of you to, to do this. I mean, I agree with you. If, if you don't go and do this, I mean, you know, well, for whatever reason, you know, I understand you may have monetary restrictions, you know, you may not, may, may not be feasible to make those trips. But consider this. What makes them wonders? It's the ability to be there and be present amongst these, really these, these tremendous milestones that we as humans have been able to construct despite whatever limitations we may have had of those time periods, right? Without being able to observe them live, and believe me, if I had the ability, I would go off on a plane tomorrow and see these. They're just pictures in a book or on a website, right? You have to, it doesn't become alive until you actually see it around you. I can vouch for that personally. I really can. I never appreciated the scope and scale of Teotihuacan until I was actually there. One of the crowning moments of my life, it really is, one of the crowning achievements of mine is to, to have actually made it there. And uh, Martha likes to remind me, because we were talking about, obviously, you know, that we'd be covering this on the podcast, and she says, I will never forget the look on your face when you walked up that hill and you saw the pyramid for the first time. She had already seen it, so she wasn't looking at the pyramid. She was looking at me. And I literally, I stopped and I was overcome with emotion, with, with awe, with this sense of, of being so small in relation, not just physically in size, but to the scope and scale and significance of what I was seeing. Right. That I, I just, I stood there dumbfounded. Right. And, uh, Martha loves that. She loves yeah. to remind me of that. And, you know, it, like I said, it was really significant. And I, I really encourage people to go out there and do this because if you visit these places, if you go and you, you experience them, place, uh, organizations like UNESCO will keep protecting them. I got to say, I had a moment, maybe not as, as powerful of one, but I, I had a small moment like that when I was at the Statue of Liberty. I mean, that's the closest thing we have to a modern version of any of these constructions and it really is an, a, an amazing piece of of architecture but just to think oh there's the symbol that we associate with this country yeah. you know it, and it just it's there and it's almost like it's almost dumbfounding because you're you don't fully accept that you're 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 fully there but yet you are and seeing it up close you know staring up at this hundreds of feet tall structure it, it is definitely you do feel small you do feel like the only thing you can really say is just wow you know, yeah. when you see it. So absolutely. This is what you have when you give nerds a microphone <laughs> and you have us talk about historical monuments. So things we're passionate about. Well, I'm going to make uh, an appeal. Normally we ask for donations for us and I'm still going to do that. Give us money. Um, we need it, please. So we can click on the going. donate button. Yes. Let us give you amazing content. PayPal. We get most of it. PayPal keeps some of it. That's okay. We like PayPal though. Um, what I'm also going to ask you to do, though, if you can dig into your wallet, if you don't think you're going to get a chance to see any of these seven anytime soon, go to UNESCO's website, unesco.org slash donate. org slash donate. And you can, uh, you can make a donation. And believe it or not, every little bit helps UNESCO to keep not only what we've talked about safe, but countless other potential wonders in their own right that also deserve protection that unesco just doesn't have the means by which to to actually consider a protected site helping them helps the world helps history helps keep all that going so this is really unprecedented nothing like this has ever existed in the world before right an organization that can travel the entire globe and take care of 
um, our history. Right. So it's it's definitely worth a donation. I'm sure there's got to be some sort of tax write off. So you know, go, yeah. go hog wild, right? You know. I mean, we're kind of. I mean, I hate to say it, but we're kind of spoiled in this country because we have Congress who can step in and they can make things a national landmark. Or no, you can file to have a no a state landmark, and the government just protects it. It just yeah. is what it is, right? Not every government is that organized or, or has, has the, the resources means to do that. Yeah. Exactly. So that's where I, UNESCO really exists, right? It's to be the the, the organization, the, the voice out there that is protecting history. And, and I agree, and protecting people as well too. So they do a lot. So check it out. Yeah. If you have it in your means, please do donate to them. Indeed. And of course, as, our, as we always say, don't take our word for it. Yeah, investigate right. these. Read about them. Go yeah. see them. Do it. Right. Um, in a couple of days after this is posted, we'll have the show notes where yep. you can see the resources we pulled, which a lot of them are from the actual archaeological sites themselves. It's the literature that they put forward. At least it was from my research. And look it up for yourself. I mean, it's really these are really really astounding. Uh, if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us on our social media. Of course, we have our Facebook page, but also Twitter, right? Yep, you can find we've us been, on the Twitverse. We've you been can, we've been using that quite a bit more ever since NMX. We learned exactly. Uh, so we have our company handle at Nerdonomy, where we post our episodes and questions and stuff like that, and that's that's all fun. But you can also follow us personally. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at the Brickmont. Now, until next time, stay nerdy, and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. So food, 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 food. Well, I do have another jar of Nutella. You do? I do. I'm not really feeling the Nutella. You sure? Pretty sure now, yeah. All right. What's this? Oh, I see there's some tapioca here. I'll have some of that. No, 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 no. <laughs>